ASI, episode 64, season 3. Some the not usual bunker music for the show. Kicking it off with a little Christmas cheer today. Here you go. That is Margaret Graham on vocals, Michael McGee on the uh, guitar and acoustic and electric guitars, and my friend Chuck Hickman on the soprano sax here in this track. My name is Russ Shaw. Russ at ASI247.org is my email address. At Russ Shaw, all one word, is my Twitter handle. And ASI247.org is the website if you'd like to connect via Facebook or email or check it out, the website for this show, the Christmas uh, Christmas episodes, kicking it off, here we go. Yes, we are a kind of artsy culture here in the Seattle Northwest Washington part of the United States, and I figured I would have a guest on my show, musician type, one of my favorite musicians, Chuck Hickman. He's also the pastor of Port Gardner Bay Church in Everett, Washington. Uh, the lead pastor, speaking pastor, I guess you would call him, is other people that speak too, uh, but uh, Mr. Hickman on the podcast today, this is him on the soprano sax in this track here, so love this guy, get it started real soon, here you go.
Today, my guest is Chuck Hickman, a friend of mine, and uh, you are a you're an interesting cat, Chuck. This is uh, this is uh, some some music that you con conglomerated on with some folks. Uh, you're a musician, have been for a long time. Yeah. Uh, you're a mariner, kind of a, a boat guy. That's right. H had your share of boats and doing some fishing and awesome uh, crab feed in the summer. That was great. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> uh, pastor, you're, uh, you're a chaplain for the Everett Police Department. Yeah. And that was cool. I went and saw your graduation from that. I've always been interested in the whole chaplain service thing, so that was really... Thanks for allowing me to come in and see your graduation from that. That was interesting. Oh, yeah. That was a pleasure having you down there. That was a pretty, pretty good time for me. That was an intense week, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> we spent 12-hour days in classes just uh, doing a lot of studying, sitting on our butts a lot, but putting ourselves through the paces when it comes to the emotions and the problems that are, people are having to deal with in traumatic situations. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you see people in some of the, the worst day of their life in a lot of cases, right? Oh, yeah. Last night I was on a call for three hours for a local man that took his own life and his entire family is just devastated. And mm. in those circumstances, it's, uh, it's good to be able to at least be present and try and help them if you can. Right. Um, whatever you can do. A lot of times in those situations, people are just really struggling with what next. And so you kind of come in and try and cover them with some resources and just some next steps to deal with the, the terrible tragedy that you, they've just encountered. So. Right, just trying to be there for yeah. them and stuff. I, we're, we're obviously kicking the show off on a chipper note. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, hey, let's bring <laughs> no, it but down. That's, no, but that's good. <laughs> that's, that's, that's reality in this, uh, this sinful fallen world, man, and, and we're all trying to get through it. And the holidays seem to be like that. It's kind of extra tough. It's extra light, but extra tough, you know? Yeah, I mean, all the statistics just show that people just go right in the toilet, <laughs> right. you know, at Thanksgiving and Christmas. All of their relationships with... Family and friends, it seems like they're magnified a thousand times, and yeah, people just have to deal with the the struggles and the aftermath of the things they've said and done over the years, and it right. all kind of comes to a head. The the coping mechanisms, right? Absolutely. And all that, you know, yeah. bridges we burn and relationships and stuff like that. It's funny how we think that we burn bridges in relationships, and then and then Thanksgiving comes, and <laughs> and there they are. <laughs> exactly. Welcome into my home. <laughs> That's right. Let us share and be thankful together. <laughs> That's right. Bring it back. Bring it back in. <laughs> yeah, that's the the interesting thing about about relationships, man. And we're becoming a more uh, enclosed kind of culture, maybe. I don't know. Oh, I think so. You, I mean, think you so? can go on the internet and you can compartmentalize every area of your life. I mean, there's no political or cultural discourse anymore. It's, yeah. it's here's my camp, there's your camp, screw you. Join that Facebook group. Right. I'm going to unfriend you. And this I'm is my join tribe. These, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tribes. Yeah. It becomes tribal. Exactly. Yeah. Social media can, it can connect us and it can disconnect us. I mean, it has the power to do both of those things. Oh, absolutely. My neighbor across the street, who I've been friends with for years, this last year... I don't think I've talked to him more than two or three times, but I've interacted on Facebook probably 20 times with him. 
<laughs> it's <laughs> right. hilarious. He's right across the street. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I have relationships like those too. It's very true. Um, you doing a doing a podcast in the in the realm of of recovery uh, in in people who have certain unwanted behaviors you know i started this podcast chuck just you know struggling with my own inability to control myself right seeing some victory yeah. that i didn't think that i could achieve and i and I, not that i achieved it i just realized that it was happening and then wanted to talk about that and so getting that going you and i were talking uh yesterday uh you You've had some struggles with with stuff over the years, many things. Absolutely. <laughs> but you were talking about you've lost like a, a, over 100 pounds, somewhere in that neighborhood, right around 100 pounds. Mm -hmm. And I've probably done that five times over. Right. Comes <laughs> lose back. It, back. Lose it. Back. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just struggling with, uh, with food and stuff like that. But you were a professional musician, mm -hmm. right? For, yep. for many, for years, right? Yep. So, uh, in the Seattle area, what did that? Yeah, look pretty like? much just Seattle. I I played with a uh, a band called the Convertibles. We were a uh, local um, cover band. I mean, it wasn't anything super fancy, right? Um, but we played the packed houses all around Seattle for about. Well, the band was together for almost three decades, and wow. I was with them for about twelve years, and. We get together every once in a while to play the Bite of Seattle or some event or something in Seattle every once in a while now. But, uh, yeah, I did that for quite a while, and it was a, it was a really fun ride. Uh -huh. um, it, it wasn't, uh, it was kind of the B level, <laughs> you know? We floated under the, under the radar of any, any magic attention. I think the best, the coolest gig we ever did was we opened for the Beach Boys at the Puyallup Fair, and they wrote a review of us. Something to the effect of the convertibles attempted an amateuristic set of bad rock and roll and tested <laughs> the oh, good no. graces of the crowd as they waited for the glorious sounds of the Beach Boys. Oh and man! <laughs> <That's not laughs> but we did get to ride in a in a uh, in a limousine, so that was awesome. There you uh, go. That was the pinnacle of my musical career. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> like that. That was you on saxophone yep. in that track, uh, the Christmas track that we kicked off the show. That's with. right, soprano saxophone. Yeah, that's my friend uh, Mike McGee and his sister uh, Margaret that right. uh, put that thing together. And Mike works for. Mike is a professional musician, but he is our musical director at the church right. as well. So he plays a lot of shows in town. Like when you see something at the Fifth Avenue in Seattle or a Broadway show comes to town, they contract musicians. Mike is one of their first call right. guitarists. And so he sits down and plays all the fun little parts on The Lion King when you sit in the <laughs> Right, that's cool. And, yeah, he's a great guitar player. Yeah, man. he's Gifted. amazing. Yeah. Uh, that's what I like about... Uh, that world is it's less it's less about kind of numbers and 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 punching a clock and and it's more about passion i mean there is that you know contractual obligations to right. show up and be on stage and do your shows but there's also that you know passion you're putting out music right yeah well it's fun but it becomes a job like anything else <laughs> right you know, any anybody can lose the passion of the things that they love just by repetition and you know familiarity right so, but uh but yeah it's it does become a job though right at a certain point it's like i gotta drag my rear end out of the house and 
get to the gig. And <laughs> you always think about that too. Like I'm thinking about how it seems like you don't hear a lot of bankers who are, who would get involved with with like drugs and substances as much as you think about musicians. But then again, they're in the spotlight. You know, part of it being a musician and part of it being a comedian or actor or actress, sure. you hear a lot of chemical dependency in that neighborhood because those people are in the public eye, right? It's I think that it's maybe just as prevalent anywhere else. Well, but, I think with musicians or actors, if you're popular, you might be doing dope to uh, to assuage your uh, struggles with the media. Right. But if you're on the other end where you're a struggling musician and you have no media and nobody cares about what you're doing, you might be trying to kill the pain of that as well. So, right. you know, it's a two-edged sword. Right. <laughs> doing doing jazz as long as you did. So, you you did some cover like a like jazz covers? Oh, during yeah. that deal with the uh with, Well, the convertibles the was all it was all uh like 60s and 70s rock and roll. Oh, I see. So I was the rock and roll You're saxophone rock and roll player saxophone, that, dude. Yeah, that covered the solos the way they were written. You right. know? So there wasn't a whole lot of creativity in it. It was the recreation and execution of, of right. music that had already been played. And when you play for crowds who are listening to that, they want to hear the saxophone solo the way it was played on the record. <laughs> right. You know, they don't want to hear Chuck come out and just, you know, share his deepest, darkest emotions through music with you. You know, they're... All right. They're looking for what it sounded like on the record when they were 16 sitting in the backseat of their car. Right. You know, so... That's right. And you are gifted, man, at the saxophone. Well, I mean, I've you. heard you... I appreciate that. ...blast that thing and, and, and with the band and... I mean, I've heard you do, do jazz. I haven't heard the rock and roll stuff, but the but the jazz stuff is, is powerful, awesome. Thank Great you. Stuff. you yeah. So when when did you meet your wife? You're married. Oh yeah. For how long? Well, we've been married for 33 years. Um, All right. Uh, someone was asking me the other day, you know, what, what's that been like? And I said, well, it's kind of like three or four different marriages. Right. I mean, it's it's morphed it changes and as you change and if you at least you try to change or you decide to change and fortunately my wife has been patient with me and decided to change with me and we've decided to take on new areas of life we've seen challenges and kind of move forward but so it's been about it seems like three or four different marriages that i've been involved with right um the first one was a teenage marriage you know with my wife pregnant with our first child i was 19 she was 20 and we met uh, at Green River Community College, uh, we were in the music program. They had a uh, group called the Music Company, and we uh, met in that. And it was hot and heavy for about three or four months. And then, oh look, <laughs> our little, <laughs> our daughter, our lovely daughter, was on the way. And it was like, wow. what does a nineteen-year-old kid do? You know. The, fortunately, I was, I was raised in a home that had some pretty strong convictions about their moral behavior and you know morality doesn't mean anything if it's not tied to anything in my yeah. mind and so to me though at that time i was just real i was thinking i was going to be moral and we got we got married uh, i i kind of look back and i think i wonder if she would have even considered marrying me if she wasn't pregnant <laughs> so on a on a strange way i feel like huh my sin has brought me the greatest joy of my life, <laughs> you know, so right. my lovely wife. Uh, and so we've had three kids uh, since then and and had them right away, had them very young and just learned a lot. Right. Um, really struggled. We probably could have been divorced two or three times over that right, period of right. time. Um, just immature and running into roadblocks. But Right. Yeah. So that's that's, that's kind of my story too. My wife and I, we met. Uh, I was twenty; she was nineteen. 
Mm. So, and then we had uh, our daughter. <laughs> and I was, Hello. I was, my wife was pregnant with my daughter when I turned 21. It's a funny story. I, we, I, I figure I'm going to go buy my first beer on my 21st birthday or, or, you know, half case of beer. So we run to this little, like, biker tavern right down the street from the trailer that we lived in at the time. <laughs> we were in a trailer, too. <laughs> See that? Single wide, baby, right, right here. 14 by 70 of luxury living, baby. That's it, man. That's right. This is the uh, the white trash podcast hour. Oh, bring it. <laughs> with Russ and Chuck. <laughs> no, but anyway, so so I'm, I'm, I'm this kid, and I go to uh, I go to this, this biker bar to, to buy a half case of beer. You know, it was my first time, and my oh, wife's no. in the car. It's probably got to be 80 degrees out and she's hot and in the car no air conditioning so I, I go in there and I put the money down and the guy puts the beer across the counter and then he, and then he goes hey you're 21 aren't you and I go yep and he fills up this like 32 ounce mug of beer and there's these other couple of tattooed ass biker dudes looking at me beards and the whole thing and Boom, he sits on the bar. He goes, you ain't leaving until you finish that. Oh, oh man. <laughs> so I go, oh, okay. But yeah, you know, I was I was married before I was legal drinking age. You were too. Me too. But I, I get what you're saying. I love what you're you're saying about the, the how marriage changes. Um, I heard a, a a psychologist, an old kind of rugged gal who was a psychologist in New York City, and she was asked about marriage. You know, again, not a Christian, not not a moralistic person who was someone who's you know Bible thumping or something like that. Just an old uh, psychologist in New York, and she goes, she goes, here's why I believe in marriage because marriage is kind of the glue that held my relationship together when the lovey, soft puppy dog, you know, ice cream and balloons. Oh yeah. When that when those feelings go away marriage is kind of it maybe it's contractual you could call it a contractual obligation if you wanted to there are times but she you was kind of she yep. was going to say that, that that's it follows you through until the next time when your relationship changes and you fall back in love again and then that that new like you're saying that yeah. new marriage is kind of kicks in that is so true yeah we would run into roadblocks you know and it usually had to do with my behavior um right. you know it's amazing how Many wonderful women are saints out there. I, I know women struggle with their own demons and, and things, but uh, it usually had to do with my troubles. And we would come to what seemed like an impasse. And then somehow she cared enough and I cared enough that we wanted to see what the next step would be. And we were willing to risk our own pride to... Uh, to care for these three lovely daughters that we had and to to live a life that maybe we didn't experience ourselves. Her parents had been divorced. Um, I had some struggles in my own home. I looked at marriage and didn't think it was all it was cracked up to be. And we we wanted to be different. You know, we didn't want the same kind of upbringing that we each had been brought up in. And, right. and so there was always just this sense of, well, let's just keep trying. We're going to keep trying. Right. And that's the attitude we have today. We're keep, we're going to keep trying. Right. You keep keep moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Keep loving each other. It's hard work. It is hard work cuz we're selfish, you know. We want to kind of <clears throat> be about ourselves and that's some of the there's just some bad relationship advice out there. If you think about, I've given you, plenty of bad relationship advice. <laughs> so have I. But you know, as I get older, it seems that you know you start to realize what's important 
you know i mean and it's not that you get to be all that you're supposed to be but that you get part of us being who we're supposed to be is to actually love and invest in someone else that 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 intimacy working for that as hard as it may be i mean i i get you man i'm a, i'm a like i said on the show many times you know i'm a, I'm a disaster slowly being rebuilt even tore down and rebuilt again <laughs> yeah yeah so you're here uh, yeah i get what you're saying with that the, talk a little bit about the the temptation i guess in in being a musician i mean there had to have been some there's something about chicks and, and musicians <laughs> right well <laughs> uh, the, i don't put you on the spot but you know uh you know the the temptations with the music thing is just always wanting to be one of the guys yeah. At least in our band, it was all guys. They were uh, great guys, really good, hardworking fellas that uh, cared about the music. They were good musicians, um, but there was an always always an attitude of kind of adolescence that we enjoyed together. Kind right. of a garage band feeling, the the fun that we might have had from younger days. There's also the the whole sexual side of things, and. I I have to say this that I I worked really really hard to avoid that kind of thing in those circumstances. Right. I think in in uh, when it was so prevalent and in my face, I was probably the most on guard and really cared. You know, the the thoughts were in the forefront of my mind of how much I loved my family and I didn't want to mess anything up there and just keep all that going. The problems I had. Um, we never seemed to be in those uh, heightened situations. Right. It was always in the darkness of my my bedroom. Right. It was in the darkness of my loneliness uh, that maybe those circumstances then infected my mind and then brought me to a point of a, a real private sin. Right. And that that uh, uh, I think that's just as. You know, it's it, it, it's the same problem. Yeah. It was just I didn't want people to see me or know me. I mean, the guys in the band knew I was a Christian. Right. So kind of part of them and enjoy the fun stuff of of band camaraderie. Right. Um, I was just looking at it all wrong and, and just trying to get something out of, out of that relationship and that circumstance that, you know, I was never going to get. I just didn't know which direction to go at the time you know so. right right yeah that's interesting that uh the temptation of the of the dark the flickering screen or, or whatever it's easier to it, it's more tempting to to be into that than than what can happen on the surface and when people see it and then they know that you did that and then there's a you know i've talked to guys in the military where there's almost a kind of a, a thing like whatever happens on the other side of the world, you know, stays on the other side of the world, kind oh, of right. a Vegasy thing. Mm-hmm. That's my joke about the Vegasy thing. Is that, you know, it doesn't always stay in Vegas. Right? No, sometimes you have to come back and see a doctor for the <laughs> stuff that you know. So, but but yeah, that, so the military guys would have that too, and they would say that you know the, there's some of that going on with the, with you know right relationships and the, the temptation to cheat. And that it would just be a buddy thing or even, you know, so I get you with that. But, uh, yeah, it's the the private addiction, you know, that nobody sees. It's you're just alone in the dark. And, yeah, that's the more the more tempting thing, isn't it? Well, and the the sad part about that is 
that it always seemed to be with me. Mm-hmm. It was always hanging over my head. I always felt less than because of it. Uh, I felt like I was defective. Right. That uh, I was bad. That was always a an issue for me is I felt badness. That I was badness and I was bad and I was sinful. And you can use whatever word you want. But for me, it was bad. Right. Because I always looked at my life like a little child. I'm either good or I'm bad, you know. <laughs> right. And um, so I saw it as this badness that was um, always there. Uh-huh. And that I always felt like a hypocrite. Like I was just somebody who uh, who was lying about the life that I was living. Right. Uh, even while I was, you know, even not really involved in church very much or anything, I called myself a Christian. I tried to, you know, I would do some overt things that made me look like a Christian. I was even kind of dogmatic about certain behaviors and things and in my own family. I mean, there was a time when I was just so anti-alcohol that, you know, we'd go to a, <clears throat> a family gathering and my my uh, group my uh, in-laws had handed my children some bottles of wine to put underneath the tree and I freaked out and you know <laughs> wow. didn't want them to touch those bottles of wine <laughs> that dirty filthy wine. dirty right. terrible you know so I, I and I was compensating with that kind of behavior right for so there was this extreme of this immense badness this impending all always on the horizon this doom and uh, trying to compensate for it with maybe more overt and you know right. gestures of surface uh, morality. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like, and I, and I feel you with that. It's when when Christianity just becomes a set of things that you do or or reality based moral situations and programs that you adhere to or labels. Exactly. Oh, well, well, Chuck's a Christian, so. Boom, there's your Christian there's your- sign. You better be d- d- this, 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 That what all those things mean. And some of that comes from upbringing, too, because it, oh, yeah. it took from, you know, I mean, I get you with the badness. I feel I've, I've you know, felt that, too, all my life. As a matter of fact, it's some of, uh, going back to some of the sexual abuse that I experienced as a kid, some of the stuff that I've been able to tell hardcore religious people is that the the way that that cat kept me quiet as a kid was to you put that in my brain that you're bad because right. you do bad now keep your mouth shut or else everyone's going to know how bad you are exactly and that was a powerful tool for that cat to use and I didn't say nothing until I was like 38 years old you know to start talking about um, what happened to me as a kid and and so that aside because I'm trying to demonstrate how how freaking wrong that is, right? You know, as Christians, we're we're being renewed. I mean, it's not that we're perfect. It's not that you even understand everything. It's that you're building a relationship with God, and God is again, He's the He's the Potter, we're the clay, kind of a thing, right? Exactly. Because you went from being the uh, so so talk about that a little bit. Because you went from being the the coke guy in the band exactly. <laughs> to the guy who's yelling at the in laws for the kids touching wine bottles. Where, where, where did that Where did that transition take place? How did that work? Out? Uh, well, I think it was always there. I mean, it, there there was never a time that there was a transition. I was always that guy, right? You know, I could it's an identity thing. I, could, I need to be this guy. Exactly. I would I would jump in with the darkness, with the badness, because right. the truth is I was more comfortable with that. And then when it came to the overt gestures, uh, it was my attempt at a relationship with God. I mean, right. it, for, for lack of any understanding, or uh, it was my attempt to try and please God, to try and do the right thing. And I, I will say this, that and, and I don't blame 
pastors for this, but, but we are very culpable in many ways on in this in this manner that almost every Sunday that a pastor stands up in front of his church in his in that pastor's mind they are trying to get their their congregation their hearers their listeners to do something right and what we really need to be doing is encouraging those people to be someone right not do something be someone yeah. and that is to be a believer right the whole do something is what got me into all the trouble I was in to begin with. Because, well, I could either do good or do bad. And if I did bad, I was bad. If I did good, I was good. And so I that's where I gathered my self-esteem, and that's where I got all of my lack of self-esteem, was you know in that whole scenario, that pendulum that was always swinging back right, and forth. Right. So now, my understanding of God's grace is totally... I mean, I'm getting more and more every day. I'm not saying, oh, I got this thing down at all. But my understanding is this. I'm a totally depraved human being. I am that bad guy in every possible way. I mean, I had to embrace, I call it embrace the suck. You know, you suck, embrace it. (laughs) I mean, wrap your arms around it and know it and just know, guess what? You're never going to be any better than you are of your own will. You're never going to do it. You're, I'm, I spent 20 years trying to be somebody that I could never be on my own. Now, I used Christian platitudes to get myself there, right. to kind of ramp myself up. Okay, I'll go to church more often, and I'll be involved in a men's group, and I'll have an accountability partner, and all of these things. And they were just things on a list, just checks and balances that were checks on a a list of things. and scorecard. A scorecard, exactly. And what it really came down to is Jesus eliminates the scorecard. He says, I forgive you past, present, and future. That's the thing that blew my mind because I thought, well, when I got saved when I was 11 years old, yay, Jesus forgave me for everything I've ever done. Yeah. But from here on out, Chuck, it's all on you. Yeah, me too. You've got to be obedient, I brother. I was taught that, too. Yeah, exactly. Like Jesus gives you the ball, yeah. and then you got to run for the touchdown. <laughs> exactly. That's not Christianity. And that's that's so true. And it's like, uh, maybe the last 50 years of Christianity, things are starting to change now, maybe, with some of the, I don't know, some of the reformers today. I, I'm still, you know, I'm still mind-blown over the whole Mars Hill disintegration. <laughs> I mean, Mars Hill Church two years ago was the fastest growing church in the country. Now it's it's going to be gone soon. Yeah. You're in, but the good news is I met you through that, which is cool. Because if I wasn't for that happening, I would have met Chuck here. That's good news for which me, Which is too. great. But anyway, I digress. Going back to what you were saying, um, it's like we we get to this place where, where pastors are kind of taught to be sort of like... I don't know when it happened, maybe in the 60s, when when psychology started to move into the church and, and the pastor, okay, well, these people are coming with their problems, you need to fix them, or you need to inspire right. them, or you need to, right, you need to get, say something that will make them change their behavior by by telling them what to do and, and not really what that it's about being it's about a sense of being in relationship with god we were all sent to dr phil school yeah we were all told (laughs) this is what you got to be now you know you got to compete with television so sermons go from wherever how long they were to 23 minutes or whatever whatever they're supposed to be you know so you can catch that window of attention for the television uh, group of folks, and then and you had to give them self help. I mean, and the 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 series like you know the ten ways to a better marriage, 
and then we go and pick out a bunch of so, uh, psychological platitudes and then add our scriptures to it and then start saying, this is what you need to do to have a better marriage. And of course, if you don't have a better marriage, it's because you haven't done those 10 things. Right. So you need to go back and listen to that. Here's a tape series. You know, you can sit in a counseling session with someone and say, well, why don't you refer to my tape session from you know 1997 when I went over the 10 things that God right. says would make a better marriage. And it's right. like, okay, this is the kind of BS that is propagated by my craft, you know, the people, my vocation. You right. Know? And we should be teaching people who Jesus is and the difference between us and this holy God and how he forgives us. You know how freeing that is? Yeah. I know you know how freeing uh, yeah. that is to be able to say, look, I know I suck. I'm terrible. And guess what? I'm never going to be much better than this. Am I going to try? Yeah. Am I going to fail? Yeah. But guess what? Forgiven, present, past, future, all done, covered. The sin that I'm going to commit today, that is going on in my head right now, that later on today I may commit, is already forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Right. Now, some people will say that's cheap grace. They're going to say, well, you know, then, then that just gives you, an, if you believe that, then you, it just gives you an excuse to sin. No, if I believe that, it gives me a reason not to. Exactly. Because this God that loves me so much saved my sorry ass. Yeah. And I want to thank him yeah. the best I can. And do I feel it, bad when I sin? Yeah. But he forgives me. But he forgives you. And, and the, that forgiveness part, that's why it's not cheap, maybe. I think that that's what people don't understand. Because some people will hear that, you know, and I've had, you know, talks with people. There seems to be there seems to be two different crowds. So you and I kind of came from the morality crowd, right. but I've also heard from people that came from the hyper reformed crowd, which, uh, you know, well, God forgives you whatever you do, so you know it's okay if I get drunk and beat the shit out of you when you're nine years old, because God says that that's okay. Well, that person right. doesn't understand that grace that you were just talking about. The fact that it's not cheap is that it's a, it's a definition of love. Like, we're not, it's not a legal thing. No. It's not a, you know, and I think that's maybe where people are missing it. Like, propitiary atonement, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, the theological word, I forget it. Mm -hmm. But but people will point to that and go, oh, he believes in propitiary atonement. Well, no, if, if I look at it like a legal thing, then yeah, then it would be cheap. But But the fact that I love, that I love my kids like that. Like, there's nothing my kid's going to do that's going to make me not love them. Exactly. And God loves like that. And if we don't get that, then, yeah, we're going to fall for cheap grace. If we think that God is is maybe... Um, I had a friend who who has a father who's wealthy, well-to-do, um, but he would rather not be around him just because of... You know, because he, he's that guy. He's he's that kind of nitpicky sort of, um, not religious, but just you got to be this way or you got to do these things, and that makes you a man, kind of a thing. So sadly, this this cat would rather just not be around his father, and uh, and that's devastating because of that same paradigm of of maybe that cheap grace that his dad is always there. His dad would be there for him, but. It's always with this kind of nitpicky kind of, nee, well, you're not good enough. You're not. And so that just, you know, for a guy like me, that it, it, like you, that just, mm -hmm. it just gives me that identity going back to that cat who, you know, I, I, I could talk about it now. I couldn't talk about this stuff just a few years ago. But, uh, but that cat who said, hey, you know, you're dirty. Don't tell anyone because then they'll know who you are. Right. And that's wrong. And God meets us there. 
God meets us in that horrible place where we're trying to hide and be, you know, oh, I don't want anybody to know this is me. But God loves that guy. That's hard for us to handle, isn't it? How, how about this one? You ever hear somebody say, usually it's someone who is a Christian authority, and I heard it from my own father. It was, you know, Chuck, you realize that you're never going to be able to do anything for God, for Jesus, until you get that sin out of your life. Oh. You ever hear that one? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And so we're completely paralyzed. It's like we, we are stopped from any kind of a relationship with God, oh, until we eliminate a behavior, until we eliminate some kind of thing that we're doing or whatever it is they're judging us on, uh-huh. that until we eliminate it. it. It just tells us that you're no good just shut up, stay over in the corner, stay out of the way until you can get your shit together. Right. And that just pisses me off. <laughs> me too. It makes me so mad because there are so many people who are thinking, well, because I'm a sinner, I can't do it. Jesus came to save sinners. Yeah. If you're yeah. not a sinner, you don't need Jesus. Yeah. That's what Jesus said. Exactly. He told the Pharisees. <laughs> That's what, you know, I didn't come for for you then, maybe, right? And at the end, where he says, hey, I, I didn't, didn't know you. Like, we did miracles in your name. I didn't really, I didn't know you. Because you're those guys who say, hey, you know, what, why are you here for them? I like to think that there was, you know, those points where Jesus is, is comes and, and says, I'm bringing the kingdom. Like, the kingdom is here. I'm the kingdom. The kingdom of God yeah. is here in your standing right now next to you. And and these guys are looking at Jesus going, well, maybe you can clean up some of this mess, you know? Right. <laughs> and he's kind of looking at them going, yeah, I'm going to start with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because his harshest words are for that crowd, you know? When we get that anger rise up in us, I mean, that's the same anger that Jesus had towards that crowd. In Matthew 23, I, I, I go through it because I'm, I can be self-righteous like that, too. So sometimes I read oh, that yeah. and go, oh, yeah, you know. But, yeah, man, tying up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and not lifting a finger to help, you know, Jesus is telling these guys. Keeping the, keeping the outside of the dish nice and tidy, clean, while the inside is all dirty. Like, clean the inside of the dish. Who cares, right? But, but that, that seems to be lost, and, and maybe that's starting to go away. In Christian teaching, but let's. I wanted to, to ask you about that as well. So you went from professional musician. Uh, you had jobs, though. Did this? Did you oh, ever yeah. do it full time? I mean, you make a living off of. Uh, well, my full time musician uh, life was uh, working at a music store uh-huh. <laughs> uh, during the day, playing at night, and uh, teaching. 25 saxophone students. Oh, wow. So that was my life as a professional <laughs> musician. Every once in a while, I loved having a side job so much mm-hmm. that as a musician, I would take a hobby, say, to sell hot tubs and swimming pools or maybe stereo equipment right. just because I loved it so much. But, <laughs> right. but I was always a professional musician. Right. The, the funny thing is about when you when you hear guys like me say I'm a, I was a professional musician, many times it was, you know, grandma paid me to, you know, play at the at the anniversary party, right. <laughs> you know, she gave me $25 and a dozen cookies. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, I mean, I worked at it. There was probably five or six years that that's how I was making my living. And it right. was, um, it was an adventure. Right. An adventure. So how did that go into, to being in the ministry? Did you got involved in some uh, music ministry, that kind of thing? Yeah, I was, uh, I had, uh, attended Bible school for a very short time mm-hmm. uh, when I was younger and then kind of got into the music like a side seminary of or well it was uh, it was a 
Christian, it was kind of at a church. It was kind of their Christian Bible program that they would use. They called it a ministry training right. center kind of thing and uh, did that for a little while. My wife spent a little more time there than I did. We were running out of money, so I had to go back to work. Uh, but that was kind of the beginning of, you know, my desire to be in some kind of ministry. I just knew when I got saved, I was 11 years old, and it was just a real emotional situation for me, and I really felt like God was calling me to be a minister. I didn't know what that meant. I I just thought, a minister, you know, I felt like that's what God was calling me to do. What it really came down to is I just wanted other people to know this Jesus that had saved me, you know, right. so, um, and I had that desire, and God somehow put that in me, but I, working through all of that, getting married, we did some, went to Bible school for a little bit, and then I just kind of got into the musician thing, was doing that. Um, <clears throat> I'd play for different churches and music ministries and stuff. And then it got to a period where I really wasn't attending a particular church because I was kind of disillusioned, but I was getting hired. There's a lot of, there's a whole subculture of hired guns for right. church services. Right. Any Sunday. Which worship service. Where, right? Yeah, they call hey, it a worship. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, they, uh, there's a whole group of folks, and I would say half of them are, you know, I'm just guessing, but about half of those guys are really great believers that really care about Christ and et cetera, et cetera. And then about half of them that are up on, you know, church stages all over the the Northwest and anywhere in the country, they're just up there for the dollars on Sunday morning. Because churches end up starting to pay because it turns into this this, uh, show. Right, you know, you gotta you you gotta nail it out. You gotta knock it out of the park. And you know, a lot of churches would hire musicians for Easter and Christmas, uh-huh. but then you know they go back to the regular Sunday, and it's like, well, it's not as good as it was on Easter and, and Christmas. So yeah. we, let's see if we can hire these guys regularly, you know. And so it starts turning into this whole hired gun situation. So I was a hired gun for a while in some churches and such, and and uh, it it kind of felt good a little bit for a while. Uh, met some guys that were, one guy in particular, Roy Herzer, great trumpet player, great musician. He was the worship pastor at a, at a church up in Everett, and I was uh, I was on a recording session with him. We were playing for, I can't remember if it was Safeway or something like It was a radio commercial, I think. And he's, we got to know each other, and he said, hey, we're going to start this Saturday night service, and I need to add some musicians to kick it off would you mind coming up and playing? Well, I was living in Tacoma. So it worked out great because they would do a Saturday night service. Then I would go into Seattle, play wherever I was playing for that night, you know, and Uh go home. And uh, so it worked out. Saturday was a busy day, but it worked out great. Then he started adding me to the Sunday morning service. And then one thing led to another. God was doing some things in my heart. He was changing me and, uh, um, Starting to tear down some of that moral stuff. That exactly. You, yeah. and, and a lot of that was my relationship with Roy. He was really showing me what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. That you right. weren't you weren't going to be perfect, you know. Right. So Roy kind of went through this thing with me, and he mentored me, and then he brought me on as a part-time assistant, doing, you know, arrangements and... And just handling the band and rehearsing them and stuff, because I had some skills in that area. And so uh, I started working in that way. Within three months, they said, the the church said, and Phil Ling, the pastor, said, hey, we can't live without this guy. You know, I was the kind of guy that I, if I just start doing something, I'd do it, you know. Right. So I was paid part-time, but I was there full-time. I was probably there 50, 60 hours a week, uh-huh. you know. Did I have intentions of wanting them to hire me? Absolutely, you know. Yeah. I was really enjoying what I was doing. They hired me, and then about a year later, Roy left. And I thought, well, my gig's over. I'll find something else. And they, the senior pastor called me into the office and said, no, nope, you're the guy. We, we want you to take Roy's job. And, and I couldn't believe it. 
I, I thought I had disqualified myself so many times from any kind of ministry, any kind of real use by God. I could be a task-oriented guy that could be on the outskirts and, well, I could help with this and I could help with that. But when it comes to the real meat of the Christian faith, you know, I've I've disqualified myself. You know, right. from the time I was 11, I've sinned so much, you know. Right. All that stuff, that weight of sin that was on my shoulders from there on out, you know, right. that I thought, it's my responsibility now to be perfect. Right. And I knew I hadn't been. Right. And, you know, Phil, the pastor there, he gave me the chance. And right. they started to show you maybe some of that. Is that what was going on? Sort of, you're seeing that maybe it's not about the behavior as much as, and how your heart's kind of changing. There was over a the bit years. of that. It really came down to one cata- catastrophic event for me. It was a couple of years in, and a good friend of mine uh, had come on the staff as well and worked in the music ministry with me, and he was seeing some behavior in me that he just did not approve of. Right. And so he wrote a a, a ten page letter to the senior pastor and. And said, you told that story. That's a beautiful story. Yeah. <laughs> but that, was, that took some time. And the, yeah. the, so this cat, talk about this this situation a little more. I, I was sure. just curious to, to ask you about that. Um, so you work pretty close with this guy? Yeah, for a number of years, and we were very good friends. Probably the best friend I had in the world. Right. And, um, you know, he had his own struggles. I had my own struggles. Uh, it kind of came to a head where re- he really felt that he needed to write this letter. He felt compelled to do it. He felt uh-huh. terrible about it. I know that about the circumstance. And he wrote this letter that basically identified a bunch of sin in my life. Uh, some of it was true, at least in my mind. I thought some of it's true. But but uh, I thought, uh, most of this is not. I would say about 20% of this, you know, and it, it was things like uh, drunkenness and backbiting and, you know, um, lying and uh, just a manipulative behavior, a lot of anger, a lot of uh, stuff like that. And as I'm listing all of these things, I'm going, hmm, true, 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 true. <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay, you know. I'm, yeah. um, there, there were some things that probably weren't true. I mean, if we just really boiled it down, but it really didn't. It didn't matter. And this was the beginning of my understanding of my total depravity. Right. Because I looked at that letter and, and the senior pastor said, hey, read this letter. Um, I don't want to talk about it now. I want you to go home. I want you to pray about it. And then we'll get back together the next morning. Right. And I'm just. This was like a church discipline thing. Oh, yeah. Going through. Oh, yeah. It was like I I knew I was going to lose my job. Wow. Uh, It was like this is like Chuck's abusive and mean. And oh, yeah. All this stuff. And there was plenty of truth in it. But Uh I, I was thinking at the time, no, there really wasn't. And I went home and I got on my knees. I really. I really prayed. I did. I, I prayed all night long. Uh, I was crying out to God. I was scared to death. You know, here my family, we had moved up here from Tacoma. I had this job. It's the best job I had ever had. I loved my job. Um, I loved what I was doing. I felt like things were going places. And and then, bam, this brick wall. And so I'm on my knees, and it took till about 5 o'clock in the morning, or about 4 o'clock in the morning, I think. I was praying, and I just said, God, what do I do? What do I do now? And I got three words. I've, as much as I, you know, I, I'm not an experiential guy. I don't, you know, angels don't show up on my shoulder and talk to me or anything like that. It just doesn't happen. But as much as I could say without, you know, dropping acid, this was the most real voice of God I'd ever heard in my life. Right. And it was three words. Own it all. And I was like, own it all. And I was devastated. Yeah. I thought, own it. how can I own it all? It's not true. 
I mean, the, the, this part and that part, and whether it was my perception of it, that it wasn't true or whether it really wasn't true, wasn't the problem. It was just that's where I was at. And I thought, how can I own all of this stuff when I didn't say it that way or I didn't mean that or I, you know... Right. All of those excuses that we all use for when when we're defending ourselves. Maybe it was more the motivation behind it, why he wrote it or something. I don't yeah, know. We don't know. It, it, I really still to this day don't understand right. all of that. But uh, I got on the phone about 5 o'clock in the morning and called Phil, the pastor, and said, man, we, we can you meet me? And he was like, I'll be there in a half hour. So it was about 6 o'clock we end up meeting. And he said, uh, well, what do you got to say? And I just said, it's all true. And he, I could visibly see the emotion on his face. And Phil wasn't a crying man, but you could tell it was welling up. Right. You know, and he said, you know, I can't tell you how glad I am to hear you say that. He said, because I was up all night too. And I was praying, asking God, what do I do? And he said, I got the impression that unless you came in here and owned every bit of this, I was going to fire you. Uh-huh. And from that moment on, this me completely owning everything, owning my depravity, owning... And it was just the beginning of me understanding it and having this complete forgiveness. Right. If I would have nitpicked it, he was going to nitpick it too. But because I owned it all, he said... Yeah, all right, let's move forward. Right. You're, you're forgiven. Let's work on reconciliation. Let's work on restoration. And so for two years, maybe longer than that, I was in a program he, that he designed. I mean, it was like 20 things on a list. And Chuck has to do all of these things. I had to get into anger management. I had to get into some Christian counseling right away. Um, I had to have an accountability partner who was with me in the ministry. And they, Derek Duncan, the next the, the pastor that succeeded Phil, um, he, uh, he came alongside me. And so I had this whole church wrap their arms around me and loved me like Jesus loves us. Wow. And said... We value you. We want to. Right. We want to restore you, and it was the beginning of understanding that there are no individual sins in my mind, in right. my life. There are not individual sins. There is a life, a body uh, of work of sin. It is a life of sin, and do either G- Jesus, His salvation for us is either complete and total or not at all. There's not individual sins he forgives us for. It is a life's work of sin right. that we are forgiven for. And that that changed everything. It's taken a lot of time. It's taken a lot of work. I'm not telling you that, oh, well, hey, there's this light switched on. You know, you, you hear the yeah. stories about the guy who's like, yeah, man, I was a dope addict. And then all of a sudden, God flipped his switch, man. <laughs> and it's gone. Yeah. Gone, baby. Stop, you know, yeah. I mean, or the porn addict or whatever it is. Yeah, that, you know, it's like, of that, all dude. of a sudden, it's over and I don't have to do anything. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. hey, I went to Shake Shale and I'll never drink again. You know, yeah. and I don't even have to go to a meeting. You know, th- th- that's great. I mean, if that can work and God does that work... You better be on your knees every day thanking God for that, because that didn't happen to me, and it doesn't happen to most people. Right. It's what a- I find is that it'll happen over here. That's my thing with with alcohol. It's it's. I'm always like I get that that alcoholics probably shouldn't drink, maybe never ever again. But if you blame alcohol, and the, and that was one of the things for me, Chuck, that 
that helped me realize, you know, when it became other things, right? When I started to see that it wasn't alcohol's fault. Because there's so much emphasis on the demon alcohol and the bad alcohol and alcohol's this and alcohol's a disease. Right. right? Yeah. No, my heart's diseased. And I was using alcohol to medicate a deeper a deeper pain, a deeper thing in my heart. But that's so cool, your, your story with, uh, with what happened there, because I was just studying uh, the 12 steps and how that came about. There was some talk on the Reconnect side about redemption groups, and Mike Wilkerson was on there trying to, what we do about redemption groups in the light of all that's happened. And uh, it, it, just going back to, to the Oxford group, was what 12 step started as okay and and it started just just basic a, a few basic things in an oxford group wasn't didn't start out for addicts it was for like clergymen and business people who were just sick of church as usual this is back in the 30s okay right? the 20s and 30s so people that were kind of fed up with religion you know and and going well how do we you know how how does god really change people's hearts and how do we move forward and how do we you know grow in grace and peace and love and and that was you know that's part of that where the 12 steps came from but it started with you know like you just said it starts with confession the first Absolutely. step is surrender complete and total surrender yeah and it's you know and there's so much emphasis but yeah there is things to do and this cat put you on a track and that's yeah. good and i talk about in the podcast here there's you know there's disciplines we can do and there's things that we can learn but at the end of the day you have to get to the point where yes god loves you and god is good it's one of the things I had a, a, a steve kewen he wrote the book uh, 10 lies men believe about porn and he did a little little interview with me and he said if you had one thing to tell uh, you know people that really struggle in this area to to what would you tell them what, what would you tell them to do and i said i said ask keep asking the question is god good mm. because if god's good then it's then it's him doing the work and it's him changing a heart and it's him that we can get close to and it's him that we can trust and through that you know our hearts change through confession, like it's the first step is confession. You talk, you say, "Hey, man, I own it all." That's what I love about your story. It's just, just owning it all, and uh, you know, coming from a church where the situation, where the pastor was brought up under discipline and just resigned, and and the whole thing's going away. I mean, those mm. are just like wow, you know. But that's that's a big part of what it really means to understand grace, isn't it? That kind of grace ain't cheap. No. it's And it's painful. <laughs> it is. It's painful. Uh, it strips you naked, kind of, doesn't it? And it's not everyone. just once. It's over and over and over again. Uh, to think that there's going to be one moment where it all comes together is just uh, that one moment with Christ on the cross, taking our names to the cross. Right. That was that moment. From there on out, it's going to be our understanding and realization of that grace that's been manifest in us. And it's even... Uh, the thing that is so wonderful to me is that no matter how great my sin is, that grace is that much greater. So our, we're going to test it. I mean, we do test it. We're going to relapse. We're going to have our problems. We're going to struggle. The other morning, my, or it was late at night, I had fallen asleep, and I, I propped this pillow up next to my head because my wife was, you know, watching a movie on her Kindle, you know, and the light was a little bright, so I propped this pillow up, right? 
and I'm laying there and I've having, having trouble sleep. I mean, I'm getting old. My hip hurts, my back hurts, my elbow hurts, my pinky hurts. I have trigger finger in my pinky. That thing hurts, right? <laughs> I'm just old. So I'm lying there and I'm trying to fall asleep, you know, and, I, and finally all the pain just kind of, it's, it's dull enough that I've finally fallen asleep and I can feel it. It's that moment when you know, oh, I just went out under the power and it's a beautiful, blissful moment. Well, and she finished reading her Kindle, and she thought, well, I'll get this pillow out of the way. And so she knocks it over with her elbow, and it slams me in the face. Now, how does a pillow slam you in the face? <laughs> By an elbow knock? I don't know, but it hit me, and it felt like a ton of bricks on my face. Yeah. And I woke up, and I'm cussing, and I'm yelling, and I'm, I pick a, I had fallen asleep with my Kindle on my lap because I'd been reading. I pick it up, and I throw it on the ground, and I'm just I'm going ballistic. Oh, right wow. now, this is a guy who's been through two years of mandatory anger management <laughs> training. I've been in counseling for fifteen years, right. going almost every week for that full period of time. I have worked my tail off to be different, uh-huh. and here it comes all over again. And I'm thinking, well, maybe I was just half asleep. And and, and you know what that told me? If I thought after I got up and I, you know, she said, you're out of control. You ought to go out in the living room or something, you know. And so I did, and I'm storming out and blah, blah, blah. And I wake up, kind of get into this wake-up mode, and I, I think, what the heck just happened? What did I just do? And how is it that I've been working so hard for the last 20 years to overcome this, and it's still right there? It's just flying right under the surface. Yeah. And on one hand, I was like, crap. Has, has nothing changed? And on one hand, nothing has changed. I'm still a totally depraved, sinning person before this holy God. But the other thing that hasn't changed is the grace that is greater than my sin. And I get one more opportunity to surrender to Jesus Christ. And those are sweet moments. Those moments of complete and total surrender. I keep saying this, and I say it from the pulpit all the time, and I say it to everybody I can. Let your sin drive you to the arms of Jesus. If you're going to sin, you're going to sin. Yeah. It's going to be the way it is. It's going to happen. Now, I'm not trying to excuse behavior. You've got to try. You've got to work hard. You've got to try and be obedient. But there's going to be times you're just going to, you're going to blow it. You're right. And, and you should, like you're saying, you, we should work to be obedient. We should, you know, but there's times where we have to realize when, I heard, I heard a guy put it this way, and I thought this was beautiful. He says, he says, there's times where you have to realize when you're just rearranging furniture on the Titanic. <laughs> Right, exactly. and that is some of that behavior mod. It's just it, it it's putting too much focus up here and emphasis up here, and it's not getting to the heart of the issue. You know, with a lot of sex addicts, anger is is a thing. I've almost I've told a number of of people that struggle with pornography that I've had years of just it comes back and it comes back and they're not seeing a lot of victory. They were seeing maybe two or three months and then it comes back. And I've 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 told a lot of those cats and I'll say it here publicly that anger management. You know, some of these guys the guys have gone to anger management. They didn't go to some twelve step group to try and get rid of the pornography. They went to an anger management class, started dealing with anger, and saw 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 where that came from. And exactly. then it's funny how that stuff up here starts to evaporate, you know. And but I, I see what you're saying. It's 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 the grace of God that moves into the heart, and and it it can change us over time. But yes, that's part of the beauty of it is you can't outsin God. <laughs> you can't. You can't. And and sometimes I think maybe we 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 test that and we push back on that. And uh, 
Well, and I, what I'm trying to encourage folks is that you're not disqualified. Right. Your sin does not disqualify you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Because it's like Mark Driscoll. What disqualified Mark Driscoll wasn't his sin. The fact that he's not a pastor anymore is because he, he quit. He didn't confess it. He just tried to... I don't know what he was doing. I don't know what he was doing. But all I knew, know, is that with a lot of guys, I mean, guys I've worked with, I saw... That's one of the reasons I left that church is because I saw in what was going on with the leadership and what was going on with Mark is this... And I don't want to make this all about the Mars Hill thing, but I'm still... This is something I'm still struggling with. something you're dealing with. Because right. it's, it's, this is the church. Is this the church? <clears throat> like, is this what we have to look to 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 understand leaders and and with the, with those guys it just kept being about um making excuses and diversion and not owning not owning at all like you said not owning at all i i would agree i i think we put we as the church put a, an expectation on our leaders that is so much greater than the expectations we put on ourselves. Now, I know that Scripture gives us some standards that seem to be higher or are higher for leaders. But I heard this once from a pastor. He said, pastors may be anointed to preach the gospel, but they're not especially anointed to live the gospel. Right. We're all living it the same. We're all struggling with the same things. And what, what a lot of folks do is they, because the pastor is calling from the pulpit for others to do something, to do more, to give more, to be better, do this better kind of life like them, then they have to hold themselves up to it. So they got to, if they do have sin, they got to hide it because, well, they're following me. Yeah. And what we as pastors need to understand is the people are not supposed to follow us. We are yeah. supposed to be following together. Yeah. We can be a voice. We can be part. But And this is one reason I'm a fan of many voices in the church. I don't want to be the one preacher every Sunday. Right. We need people that are trusted, that understand God's word, that can preach as well, and let them give their perspective, let them share their sins, let them talk about the struggles that they're going through. And I think sometimes we don't give people a place you know, these pastors, a place to be able to confess, a place to be able to do. I went to a Calvary Fellowship Pastors Conference. It was awesome. Probably the best conference I've ever been to in my life. Now, if you're not a Calvary pastor, you're not supposed to go to these things. Right. And I won't say who got me into this thing <laughs> and smuggled me in under the radar. Uh-huh. But I got to go to this event. And let me tell you something. This was amazing because on, I think it was the third night of this five-night concert or um, con- uh, conference, one of the speakers got up there and there was a thousand pastors from all over the country and he says tonight I want to talk to the guys that are struggling with pornography, alcohol and drugs and we're going to pray for you no condemnation you're not going to be removed from your positions as pastors, you're not going to, you know, it was and he said I want you to come forward and we're going to lay hands on you. We're going to pray for you. We're going to get through this together. If you need help, we'll help you get help. We'll figure this stuff out together. Without saying, you're done. You're disqualified. You're right. out. Over 200 men went forward out of 1,000. Think right. about that. 200 right. pastors. That's 20% 
my goodness, went forward for this prayer, thought, I have enough and on this And it's almost like a public confession, too, isn't it? It absolutely Because everybody sees them more. Well, right. and there were po- folks there that were not pastors. There were people that were workers and custodians and all the right. folks that were running. The, I mean, they, they could look at it and go, man, this church thing is screwed up. I looked at it and went, this church thing has hope. Yeah. This church thing has hope because these guys are forgiven. They're, it's understood that they're going to struggle, that they have all of these issues. And I think when you look at a guy like Mark Driscoll, and I don't know him personally, and I'm not trying to make a comment like that's derogatory about him or anything like that. I know many people that have been very benef- benefited from his ministry. Yeah. I have. But yeah, and I you still have. pray for them. Right. Um, <laughs> but, but if you take one person. And then you magnify that person. You put him on a screen at yeah. you know ten different locations and twenty thousand different people, and he's bigger than life. He's better than life. Mm-hmm. He's smarter than everybody else. I mean, he's a brilliant man. There's no question about it. He's an amazing communicator. And you put him up there, then the standard is so high. If he does fall, he's going to fall far and he's going to fall hard. Yeah. But think if you had ten different pastors in those different situations at those different locations, with those different people, that were a little less under the magnifying glass, under the microscope. They are, but at the same time, they've got relationships with people. Here you've got a person who doesn't have relationships. I mean, I, I asked someone, oh, Mark Driscoll's your pastor. When, when Did you have lunch with him last month? Did yeah. you, you know, <laughs> does he know your kids' names? Does he, you yeah, know? Yeah, he can Right, yeah, well, and that kind thing. of separation can be bad for both sides. It can yeah. be bad for the oh, pastor yeah. because they become a li- isolated and then they think they have to keep up this persona and yeah. they have to be perfect and then the people look to him and then if they see any, you know, chink in the armor, oh boy, he's disqualified. We got to move him out. So, right. and I'm not I don't understand all of the details of his thing and I'm not saying he should or shouldn't be disqualified as a pastor. That's up to the congregation, the leadership of that church to deal with. So, that's not my commentary, but I just think it's it's has a propensity for problems. Yeah, so. it's the pressure of, uh, you know, it's like you you bringing up the gospel, and I think that's part of it is is realizing the, the true definition of that word. You know, the the mm-hmm. good news. It really comes down to good news. They they trace this word gospel back to like a, a guy who's coming in on a horse to tell the village that the impending army that was going to overtake and pillage the village has been defeated and that the, <laughs> the good news this guy bringing gospel that's true right it's not a fraud it's not like he's just you know oh it's coming later but for now we're cool no right th- that enemy's been defeated we're safe this is good the battle's been won now, now you can relax. This is I, can, I bring good news. That's that's the good news, and I think that when pastors say, um, "If you do these things we tell you to do, then you'll live a better life, and then things will be nicer, and things will be better for you," um, that's not good news. It's, the good news isn't that I can come no. to the cross because I've got this. You know, uh, follow me to the cross. It's no. Let's all come to the cross. And get on your knees. There's room at the cross. That's the good news. There's room There's for room. everybody at the cross. It's not, come follow me to the cross. No. I'm broken. I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. Come kneel with me. There's room for you as well. You know, uh, and this is just a side note on this whole thing. Mm-hmm. I've done, I've been in years of counseling. Right. You know, the first two years of being in counseling... I started thinking, 
huh, I kind of got a handle on this. I, I, I might be able to do this. I mean, I, <laughs> right. you know, I think everybody who's, you know, been in counseling or been a professional recipient of counseling, they get to a point where it's like, you know, I'm getting pretty smart on this thing. I'm going to, I could probably do it. I wonder, I, you know, I'll check into the University of Washington School of Psychology. I, I might, you know, try to do this thing. And then you spend a little more time and you go, what the hell am I thinking? <laughs> right. I'm an idiot. I don't know. I don't get any of this stuff, you know, yeah. but the, the whole, that whole side of thing, I think a lot of pastors think that they should be good at counseling because they know the Bible. Right. That is not true. No, it isn't. I, and you don't... One of the things I'm realizing, maybe you don't know the Bible. I'm starting to get really <laughs> suspicious about the cats, like, you know, that say they got the Bible all figured out. Well, I know correct biblical interpretation. No, you Great. don't. The Bible says that about itself. Well, isn't Peter talking right. about Paul? Hey, you know, some of this stuff is hard to understand. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I have a strict policy I refer people to the professionals who know what they're doing, who yeah. I trust, who I've had relationships with, so that if they have a particular issue that they really need to deal with, I can help them on the spiritual beginning of that journey. Uh -huh. But there's a lot of hard, you know, putting your feet to the fire and dealing with those things, the asking of questions, the making of plans, the desire to change, the the things that they're going to have to go through. And I'm not going to pretend to be the guy to do that for right. folks. But I think some folks think... You know, well, it, it goes along with this. Like, I was diagnosed bipolar 15 years ago. That was part of that whole 10-page letter thing. And, right. You know, my anger issues and all of that. And It was part of the fruit of that was dealing exactly. with the bipolar. And I grew up in a family with two bipolar parents. Right. They didn't know it until they were, you know, adults. And so uh, I had this propensity for it. So I, I become this, bi you know, I understand the bipolar thing a lot. I don't think that defines me. But I immediately got on some medication. I can't tell you how many people in the church were so against the medication, so against the outside help. You know, you need to trust Jesus for every little chunk of everything. And do I? Absolutely. But I also trust him that there's some great medicine out there that yeah. give, me, give me some freaking breathing room to get my head above water to be able to start to see some of my behaviors and my emotions and start to deal with those things. And I think there's... You know, use every opportunity. I mean, I'm not necessarily saying go, into, go to the Satanist, you know, to get help. <laughs> no, but yeah. I'm saying within the world, there's plenty of great things. We go to doctors all the time. They yeah. know stuff. Yeah, there's some do. smart folks out there. Let's they let are. them help us. That's you know? right. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. And it doesn't compromise your Christianity, your spiritual life. It doesn't compromise your commitment to Jesus Christ. You know, you trust God, I know. But you still go to work every day to get money, don't you? Exactly. If it doesn't fall out of the sky for you. <laughs> That's right. You know. I used to have a thing on my refrigerator. It's a picture of a bird. And it says, yes, God provides worm for the worms for the birds, but he doesn't throw them down their throats. <laughs> right. Oh, man, that's good. <laughs> so yeah. they do that. Good and uh, so... Yeah, man, I, I, I'm not anti-medication either, and I've been on, you know, a series of medications. I've thought about, you know, checking that out again, possibly, getting some counseling. Um, because there was, a, there was a gal, there was a gal on the Reconnect site that was talking about the Redemption Group stuff, and she's kind of sort of self-righteous in the psychological community that's saying, hey, now you guys can finally go to the psychologist and get the help you need. And there was some truth to that, right? Yeah. There is some truth to that. Um, but there can be, you know, self-righteous psychologists. Like, this This gal was kind of like that. But at the same time, there is some truth to that. And like you're saying, that 
yes, there's spiritual people that can lead, you know, be involved in the church, be involved in maybe a, a small group or a Bible yeah. study or, right? And then, and then get people, you know, people that love on you. I, I, you can sniff, I can sniff out religion. I may, this took a while to, to do, but I, I could sniff out religion. Hmm. I remember going to a Bible study years ago and just thinking, this is, this seems fake to me. Like it was just kind of people talking about what, what the world should be doing and the reading the scriptures and they're going through, but it, it didn't impact the heart. It wasn't about like, like Timothy said, slicing us open and revealing our insides. It was all, okay, this is how people should and ought to be. It was a lot of shoulds and ought tos. And I just thought, no, this isn't, this isn't healthy, you know, but getting involved in people that love one another. And then and part of that loving another person is like you're saying is saying, Hey man, you know, maybe get some help. Go see a, a, a psychologist, a clinical psychologist. There's great Christian psychologists. There's there great are. Bible psychologists, you know, that are biblically based Christian, yeah. you know, and, and not all of them are great. You got to do some looking yeah, around, you, do. Yeah. you know, you got to try a few different ones. It took me for medications, it took me seven different medications right. before they found one that would help me. And it was over a two-year period. Right. So finally, after two years, and I'm off those kinds of medications right now, but it doesn't mean I might not be back on them. Yeah, me we too. Go, we go through seasons of life, yeah. and there are things that change with us, and our circumstances change, and our, our physiological makeup changes as we age and so like the other night me waking up and going going off uh i haven't done that in a long time but right. it was a surprise and i thought wow if that kind of becomes a pattern of behavior i, I might need to look at what can i do to help conquer that right, you know? right. so Worked and i don't that. think i ever conquer it i use words like that but <laughs> right. a, you know i'm not i'm not the conquering hero at all it's right just, yeah See that thing fall off, right? Yeah. You know, that's that kind of thing. Yeah, so. and if I need help, I'm going to get it. Yeah. I mean, my wife and I have been in marriage counseling for years. And we had a joke. We'd say, we go once a month whether we need it or not. Right. And the truth is, we need it. Uh -huh. But the what it helped us do, first of all, it helped us stay married for 33 years. Thank God for that. Right. I mean, I'd rather spend, you know... 125 or 150 bucks once a month to go see this guy to help kind of arrange some stuff. Uh, there were times we were going once a week because the stuff was really difficult. All right. You know what? I'm a fan. I'm a fan of getting help. Yeah. And there's lots of help out there. There is. Yeah. And if you, you can find the right group of people that can help you, whether it's church or any kind of friendships or organizations, you know, that can help, man, I'm all for it. Yeah, me too. A lot too. of different roads to, to getting the help that we need. Yeah, that's right. And it's part of uh, part of being healthy. And just like, you know, there's Bible studies where you kind of sniff around and go, eh, I don't belong here. Yeah. There's places you can go that are healthy and just don't quit. I think people quit too easy. Like this Christianity yep. thing is bullcrap, or it didn't work for me in the past. So what's to say? Well, maybe it was just some weird Pharisaical religion thing, you know? God has a spot for all of us. Yeah, there's a place for everybody, and I'm not necessarily saying it's in the conventional church setting or whatever it is. I don't know what it is for you. If you're living out in the bush somewhere in in Australia, you might have to be your own church. You might have to create your own kingdom of god's will on this earth right there you know you might have to be grab your friends or grab it's maybe it's you and your family it's us four no more whatever it is 
but get together. I yeah. mean, try and get with people and get with God together. Yeah. And uh, I think there's benefit in all of that. That's right. Amen. Well, thanks, Chuck. We're running out of time. We went over time, which well, is always good. You can edit out. Oh, edit I won't out. edit. I don't usually <laughs> edit nothing. I just leave it. <laughs> it's always a good organic conversation that we have. Right on. Chuck, thanks again for being on the on the podcast here. Um, any final thoughts that you would say to someone out there who's maybe a pastor like yourself, who's maybe struggling and, and, and it's in the dark and, and they know that it's kind of like that ticking time bomb. That's again, that, that bomb squad analogy. It's, it, it eventually it, it either gets better or it gets worse. Uh, something I've seen is it has to come out in the light because eventually it's kind of like that, you know, it's like a car sitting on a hill. It's not going to, it's either, it's not going to just sit there. It, it, it progressively, it progresses. And I know yeah. we're talking about behavior so much as the, as the sin itself. What would you say to someone that really I would say struggles? two things. I'd say first, pray for God to show you your sin. Yeah. Pray for him to show it to you, to make it plain to you. And also, pray for God to send someone your way that you can begin the process of coming out with that sin. Someone to come your way. Right. It might be your spouse. It might not be. It might be another pastor. It might not be. It might be a friend, a family member. You will be able to know. God will give you the sense of knowledge that that person is someone that you can trust. But even if you can't, in the end, people get betrayed. Trust gets betrayed, even if yeah. it does. There's that fear of, of reaching out. There's a fear of all of that. But I can guarantee you this. That even if it gets out, or when it gets out, is more likely. <laughs> exactly, when it gets out. Uh, if but when. God, first off, he's going to show you the sin. He's going to lead you through the reconciliation, the restoration, so caringly, so lovingly. You're, you have no idea, if you're in the dark, you have no idea the grace and the love that is on the other side of that wall of shame. Yeah. If you can just get one step past, stick your toe past that wall yeah. and see what God will do. Yeah. He will definitely embrace you and love you in a new and fresh way that you had no idea was out there. That's right. You're not your issues. No. You're a person. Your God is good. You you are valuable to God. He loves you so much. He'd let his own son die. He yeah. killed his own son. To sacrifice him for us. That's, That's right. That's a, a worthwhile, because of the worth that is in us. Absolutely. God, and God just wants us closer, you know. That's part of maybe this whole mess of humanity, to bring us closer. Absolutely. You know. Love you, Chuck. Love you too, brother. Thanks again for being on the podcast. I love it. I'll, let, I'll send you out with some more uh, from from my friend Chuck here. Uh, this is uh, the North Shore Jazz Collective Volume 1. This is uh, some more stuff from, from Chuck on with the jazz. Love this stuff, man. I love your love the saxophone playing. Thanks, brother. <laughs> it's God's instrument. There you go. Gabriel, Gabriel he played trumpet because he couldn't play saxophone. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yes, there he goes. Chuck Hickman with his uh, saxophone there <laughs> pastor pastor chuck and i talking about releasing control 
Um, I've heard people say that the opposite of faith is fear, but I think it can also be control, right? Because when we get controlling, we don't necessarily know why, and that can be two different places. It can be we're putting our faith in the wrong things, or we're overcompensating with control because we don't want to admit we're afraid. That's really kind of, listen to that message again, did a, a little bit of editing for time. We actually went over an hour and a half. Uh, but it, 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 it occurred to me that what really is the freeing process of this is, is God's love, you know, colliding with the fact that we are so addicted to control, you know? We want to be in control of things. And and God's not after your begrudging submission, right? That's a very, another very freeing, powerful truth. That the, before the Ten Commandments, there was this commandment to cultivate, right? What theologians call the cultural mandate and what, uh, what Donald Miller talked about with... Um, you know, we want something. Part of the part of the story, the storytelling that is our life is that that we we want something, that we're after something, that we have desire for things. What is that desire, and and how does that start to melt away this energy of of moral control over our lives? That's just an illusion. Listen, the fact that you listened to this podcast up to this point, it, it tells me something, you know. It tells me that your your desire to learn some truth and to understand where who God is and what he's about and seeking after, uh, you know, through my story, through Chuck's story. And listen, it's not outside of relationship, all right? This is not some you know, thing another thing that you have to overcome, like like sex addiction and how I got what control addiction, Russ. No, don't think of it that way, right? Think of it like God loves you like like a two-year-old. And part of the process of beginning to walk and clearing away all the clutter of you know, theology and, you know, the, the, the checks and balances, clearing away all that stuff is, is actually starting to walk in His grace. It's building that relationship with Him, that very real relationship with, with our Father in Heaven, with our Mother who is the Holy Spirit, if you will, right? To use some of Paul, Paul Young's teaching. Um, it, it, it's... It's walking with God. It's letting Him be right there in loving relationship with us as we stop trying to do it self, right? Do it by myself, like a little kid. Truth just kind of bubbles to the surface. And uh, I pray for you during this holiday season. I, I, I I, I want every blessing for your life. I love you guys, man. I really do mean that sincerely. It's not just something I say. I thank you for for your prayers. I thank you for your financial support of this podcast. And uh, I wish you guys a very, very happy holidays. I'm just kind of putting these podcasts up as I have the 
the time and resources lately. It's been tough, but uh, had to sit down with my friend Chuck before the end of the year. You know, looking at this year as a book, right? And then, and then the last chapter. What's that going to look like for the ASI podcast? Um, I, I, again, I, I, I genuinely pray for your blessing of God's grace and God's mercy and kindness on your life this holiday season. Until next time, bye. Thank you.